Rather than spending two or three Sabbaths on a brief series on stewardship, we're just going to dive right into our brand new series, which is titled Incomparable. Incomparable. The kingdom of heaven is like. And this will be a chapter by chapter, section by section, walk through the gospel of Matthew, first book of the New Testament. And so over the course of the rest of the year, the next 28 uh, sermons will be straight out of the book of Matthew. And conveniently, does anybody know how many chapters there are in the book of Matthew? 28. 28. That was the giveaway, Kylie. 28. Um, a few things that I just thought I'd share with you before we get right into the series. After we launched the Bring It campaign last Sabbath, and we even put it up on Facebook, uh, we've already received quite a, fairly significant donations have already come in, uh, both from our local church, but here's something I think you would think is pretty cool. We are actually receiving uh, emails and contacts from people overseas that are saying, hey, how can I support the Bring It campaign as well? And so that's a really cool thing to know that it's not just something locally that's happening. Last night I put up, uh, or yesterday I put up the, the new series backdrop for the, the upcoming series and the slide on Facebook and Twitter and um, Instagram, and already we're getting some input that I thought you would find very interesting since we're just a simple little seaside church here in Australia. Eric writes, eagerly waiting for, these new, for the new series to be uploaded to the internet. I thought that was great. Sean writes, we'll be listening. I love it. I cannot get enough of God's work through your local church. Lori writes, blessings to you and your church. We watch every sermon on YouTube, and I can't wait for the next series. Your messages are so appreciated all the way over here in the United States, Oregon. And finally, Dave writes, yay, thank you, Jesus, real sustenance. I can't wait, I can't, I can't wait but I'm still processing the Ablazing Grace series. I am so much more in love with the Lord, and it's so much easier to share the Old Testament now that it's finally opened up for me in plain and simple explanations. I was just asking myself the other day, when is Kingscliff going to do a series on the New Testament? Alas, my prayers are answered. So it's a really cool thing just to know that, that what we do here in our simple little uh, seaside church, that that affects a lot of people around the world. Lots of people tune in to listen to these sermons, and we believe that we're only scratching the surface of the potential impact that we can have around the world with bringing the good news of Scripture and of Jesus Christ. And so wanted to share that with you. You will notice that for this new series, there are no banners up. And part of the reason for that is those banners cost not a lot of money, but a, several hundred dollars, and we just decided to forego the banners in the interest of putting that money into the ongoing refurbishing campaign. And so uh, there, there won't be any banners this time around. We've just, we'll just have to look at those lovely-ish blue curtains. Um, I think that's everything I wanted to say uh, by way of introduction. Uh, we're going to start now with a word of prayer and get right into our brand new series through the Gospel of Matthew titled Incomparable. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I'm really looking forward to this series. I know Pastor Jared and Pastor David are looking forward to the series. And Lord, as we now commence, really, the next big series, we've been through Acts, we've been through the Old Testament, Acts in 28 sermons, the Old Testament in 52 sermons, and now we go into the Gospel of Matthew, again, in 28 sermons. 
Lord, I'm fired up, and I believe you're fired up. I think you are excited about this series. You're looking down on Kingscliff, and you're thinking, man, there's going to be some great insights. There's going to be some great transformations. There's going to be some great sermons and, and responses to those sermons there in Kingscliff. Father, I pray that you'll be with our launch today. And I want to pray a special prayer for Brooke and Bailey who are over preaching at Willamette today. Father, be with them. If there's any nervousness, take it away from them and just give them a freedom and a peace to communicate what you've laid on their heart. Do the same for me here today, Father. And as we open up now the New Testament, it seems like it's been a long time since we've been in the New Testament. But as we open up the New Testament, Father, may this be a journey for us that draws us closer to Jesus and therefore closer to you, our Heavenly Father. Send the Spirit, not just to be here in this place, but especially to be in the hearts of the people who are in this place. To be in us and with us. What a central theme in the Gospel of Matthew, with us. Be with us now as we turn our attention to you. May you turn your attention to us by the Spirit, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. All right, though we're a little bit few in number this morning, we don't have to be small in enthusiasm, do we? No, that was really persuasive. That's Australian enthusiasm. Actually, I've seen Australian enthusiasm. I watched the State of Origin game this last week, and I have seen that it is possible for Aussies to get really fired up. We're just working on them getting fired up about the things that matter most. All right, let's talk a little bit about how is it that we came to where we are now. Uh, for those of you that are longtime members here or uh, watchers of the YouTube channel, you'll be aware that we've just come through a series on the Old Testament that we call The Blazing Grace, Another Look at the Old Testament. We are now launching our brand new series titled Incomparable, The Kingdom of Heaven is Like. This will be a chapter-by-chapter exploration and exposition of the Gospel of Matthew. So why Incomparable and why Matthew? Well, let's talk a little bit about where we're at and, and where we're going. The sermon today is actually titled, The Kingdom of Heaven is Not Like. The Kingdom of Heaven is Not Like. Where did we come from? How did we get here? Well, you will recall that the series of Blazing Grace was divided up into seven chapters. Those were conveniently located on the banner to our left. So you can just imagine a beautiful banner that is there uh, with the new series that will also have seven chapters, which we'll get to in just a moment. But those seven chapters that we walked through... We divided the Old Testament up into beginning, family, exodus, land, kings, exile, and then finally culminating with Messiah. We didn't really spend any time on the Messiah chapter because the Messiah chapter is what we're discussing now in the Incomparable series and beyond. Uh, We don't know exactly what the future will hold for 2017. We've got a lot of topics in the Old Testament that could lure us back in, or we might spend some time in prophecy. We'll, We'll sort of see what the feel of the church and the feel of the pastoral staff is. But for the next half year, we're going to be spending our time in the first book of the so called New Testament. Now, I just want to say a brief word about that before, and I think I've mentioned, or before we go on, I think I've mentioned it here before. And that is that the only page in your Bible between Genesis chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 22 that is not inspired is this page right here. See if you can find this page in your Bible. You'll find it just before the Gospel of Matthew. Okay, I've got mine here. Yours doesn't have it. Very good. I'm impressed. Impressed, Tony. Does any other Bible not have this page? This page right here that says the New Testament on it? Okay, this is the only page in your Bible that is uninspired. 
And uh, I'm so impressed. I've never seen a Bible before, Tony, that didn't have it. So that's great to know. Well, you'll notice that in, in my Bible, I've taken the liberty of folding that page in half so that I don't have to look at that page. I don't want to see that yucky page. Um, if you're a little braver than me, uh, you could just tear that page right out because it really doesn't belong there. And one of the reasons that I suggest you either fold it over or tear it out is that it introduces an artificial distinction between the so-called Old Testament, which sounds so old, and the nice, shiny New Testament that sounds so new and sparkly. In fact, this is an artificial division that is really does damage to, to your thinking about Scripture and actually, in a way, to Scripture itself because it introduces, as I've said, an artificial distinction that there's something different or dissimilar between the so-called Old Testament and the so-called New Testament. In fact, both the Old and the New Testaments are revelations of God and His goodness as manifested in Jesus Christ. I have in the past referred to these two Testaments as the New Testament and the Newer Testament, if you prefer, uh, far better than the Old and the New, because the Old sounds so antiquated, dusty, outdated, obsolete, we're out with the Old, in with the New. Well, one of the things that we've learned in our Ablazing Grace series is that in, that in fact, Jesus is all throughout the Old Testament. I remember shortly after we announced that we were going to be doing an entire year-long series on the Old Testament, I had one concerned church member come up to me and say, ooh, a whole year in the Old Testament, Pastor? Do you think that's the best decision? I mean, you're, you're only new here. That might not be so wise. But I was pleased to hear that uh, several months later they approached and said, man, this is not at all how I thought it would be. There is so much Jesus, so much grace, so much gospel in the Old Testament, which is exactly why we called this series A Blazing Grace, another look at the Old Testament. And so what we're going to do is we're going to transition now between the seeming chasm between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew into the so-called New Testament. As we leave the Old Testament, it probably would do us well just to remind ourselves of where we left off. The last chapter that we dealt with in earnest was the chapter Exile. And you might recall myself and Pastor Jared saying things like, the wheels had come off Israel, right? The, the experiment had effectively failed. God's hope and God's plan for Abraham's descendants, what had come to be known as the nation of Israel, the, the plan that they would bring the gospel of the Gentiles, that they would really epitomize what a nation that made Yahweh uh, first and foremost would look like, that, that that did not happen. And not only did it not happen, it didn't happen to such a degree that God finally honored the request of Israel to separate themselves from Him. And what we end up with, even before we get out of the so-called Old Testament, is Israel and Judah both in captivity. Babylonian captivity in the case of Judah and Assyrian captivity in the case of Israel. Uh, we then ended the Old Testament with a return from captivity, where both Judah and Israel have now gone back to some degree, uh, not all of them, but many of them to their native land, and the, the desire and the goal under Nehemiah and others was to rebuild the temple. And in, fact, in fact, they did. This period, after the rebuilding of the second temple, up until the destruction of that temple in A.D. 70, which is yet future uh, for, from where we're at now in the New Testament, that period is what scholars call Second Temple Judaism. 
Second Temple Judaism. It, it also contains a period that we'll talk about in a little bit called the Intertestamental Period. The Intertestamental Period is just exactly what it sounds like. It's that period, that chronological period that takes place between the end of Malachi, which is about 420 B.C., and the New Testament. So there is a significant chronological gap in here. I've suggested that you fold this page over because it doesn't belong there thematically or theologically, but there is a fairly significant time period in here, a period of about 400 years, okay? This period, Second Temple Judaism, after the building of the Second Temple, before its destruction, which is yet future to us, as I've mentioned, this period here is a period that we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about today to sort of set up where we've come from, where we are, and where we're going. Uh, One of the prophets that anticipated the coming exile and the final demise of God's hope and dream and optimism for Israel and Judah was Jeremiah, sometimes called the weeping prophet. In fact, it's, it's really challenging, almost discouraging to read the book of Jeremiah because it's difficult to find any place in the entire book of Jeremiah where you get the sense that anybody paid any attention to anything that Jeremiah actually said. And yet, even in Jeremiah, right in the heart of the book of Jeremiah, right toward the center, is this promise, this promise by God to Israel, to Judah, that everything would eventually work out. Not in the ways that they had hoped, but God's promise was sure nonetheless. Look at what it says here in Jeremiah 29. This is one of the very last verses from our very last sermon in the Ablazing Grace series, a sermon on the book of Malachi titled, uh, The Dream Has Died, But a Resurrection is Coming. And this was a passage that we ended on, and I thought it would be really appropriate to commence our new series with this in mind, to remind us of where we've come from, where we are, and where we're going. For thus says, this says, the, I should say, thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word to you. Notice that, I will visit you. And I will do all of this good stuff that I've been saying that I would do to and through Abraham and his descendants. I will cause you to return to this place. This is an anticipation not only of exile, but of return from that exile, which, as we've mentioned, did begin at the end of the Old Testament. God says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. So even in the midst of the weeping prophet's almost uninterruptedly discouraging book is this promise of hope and of optimism to give you a future and a hope. God says, yes, Israel has failed. Yes, Judah has failed. But I have not failed. I have not failed. My plan has not failed. My vision has not failed. I will give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. Even now at so late an hour, I will yet listen to you, and you will seek me, and you will find me. An even more precise way of saying this in light of the New Testament would be, and I will seek you, and I will find you, but we'll get there in just a bit. Then you will search for me with all of your heart, and I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. This passage is brimming with optimism, brimming with hope, and brimming with a future that was bright. I will gather you from the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. I will bring you to the place from which I have caused you to be carried away captive. So this is very close to the place where we left the Old Testament in our Ablazing Grace series. The promise of God that the dream, even though it appears to have died, would be resurrected and that somehow, through some circuitous and surprising way, 
God would bring about a happy ending to this story that seemed so dismally sad up to this point. Another verse that we quoted from our last sermon in the Ablazing Grace series was Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, God says. Behold, I'm, I'm, I'm sending a messenger, a new messenger, which, which really is quite remarkable because this announcement is made in Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, and that messenger doesn't arrive, as we've mentioned here, in, until almost 400 years later. Some Protestants refer to this period between Malachi and Matthew as the silent years, a period of some 400 years where there was essentially no prophetic voice. We have no biblical or canonical record of what's taking place in here. We will talk a little bit about the, some of the historical developments in that period, but, but here's the promise all the way back in the Old Testament. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. Behold, he is coming. Several things in this verse. The first is this notion that, that the messenger will come, the messenger of the covenant, and he will come suddenly to his temple. The, the use of the word suddenly here by Malachi almost indicates that it will come in a surprising or a less than anticipated uh, way. That, 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 that his coming to the temple won't happen as you might have thought. And the New Testament fulfills this profoundly. When Jesus does come to the temple early on in the gospel accounts as an infant, as a child where he is offered, he then later comes to the temple in a very unexpected way where he cleanses it and says, take these things out of here. You've made my father's house a den of thieves. Jesus does come suddenly, but not just suddenly in terms of chronology, but he comes in an unexpected and an unanticipated way, exactly as Malachi had, had foretold and anticipated. The Lord will come suddenly to his temple. Behold, he is coming. The very last slide, I think, from our Blazing Grace series said this, something very similar to this. The Old Testament ends in really the only place it can, in desperate need of Jesus, the promised Messiah. As we leave Malachi, we get this sense that, okay, how is God going to pull a happy ending? How is God going to pull the rabbit out of the hat here, right? God's promise to Abraham appears to have gone completely flat. It appears as though there's no hope, no future, and yet Jeremiah and Malachi and other prophets, but these two in particular we've quoted today, are brimming with an optimism that there will be a positive outcome, that there will be a happy ending, but the way that it will come about will be unexpected, surprising, and unanticipated. Let's talk now a little bit about that intertestamental period, that period between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew. First of all, as we've mentioned, it was a period of about 400 years. During this period, several very significant things happened, things that will become very significant for our understanding of the New Testament going forward. One of the first and most important things that took place during this period was the translation of the Hebrew Scriptures into the common Greek, what was called the Koine Greek, which was basically the lingua franca of the day. It was the common language. It was the English of the day. And that Bible is called the Septuagint. The Septuagint, if you've ever heard that before in a sermon or maybe you've read it in a book, the Septuagint, it simply means the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, there were reasons that the Scriptures needed to be translated into the Greek, and one of them was, if you just jump down uh, to the very next one, in fact, there, it says Greek and Aramaic were becoming the Jews' common languages. By the time we get to the New Testament, Hebrew is not a spoken language particularly, or if it is spoken, it's not commonly spoken. 
the languages that most Jews were speaking during that time were either Greek or Aramaic, and some would have been bilingual. Some certainly would have known Hebrew, but by this time Hebrew is largely a written language, and when Jews were communicating among themselves, they were communicating either in Aramaic or in Greek. Now, what makes this even more interesting is that, astonishingly, many Jews did not speak Aramaic. They only spoke Greek because generationally, generation after generation after generation had been removed from Palestine, had been removed from their traditional and ancestral homelands, and they had, like many immigrant communities today, over time lost connection with their immigrant heritage. And they still identified as Jews, they still practiced Judaism, they were still culturally Jews, but one of the casualties of the loss of their Judaism was a loss of Semitic, the Semitic language, either Hebrew or Aramaic. And so you have the Greek New Testament, excuse me, excuse me, you have the Greek as the lingua franca of the New Testament, the language that's being spoken, the language that the New Testament was written in, and so it became very critical and important for Scripture to be translated into the common language, into a language that people could actually read and have. And so the translation of the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek, what's called the Septuagint, was a major development during this intertestamental period. There is debate, scholarly debate, about whether or not Jesus spoke Greek. And uh, there seems to be really good evidence, at least from my perspective, really good evidence that Jesus did, in fact, speak Greek. In fact, He might have been speaking in Greek most of the time. I can give you some reasons why I think that's the case, but that goes beyond uh, our presentation today. Also during this period, the intertestamental period, there were major developments in the independence of the Jewish nation. You would be aware, based on our study of the Old Testament and your own familiarity with the history of the Old Testament, that the Jewish nation had been almost uninterruptedly in subjection to pagan powers, other powers, beginning, of course, with Egypt and then later Babylon, uh, Assyria, Greece, and then now when we come to the New Testament, Rome. Now, for that reason, uh, the, 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 the Jews who fancied themselves as the people of God and as the covenantal people of God despised and, and hated their pagan oppressors. And during this intertestamental period, a very significant revolt in Jewish history took place, a revolt called the Maccabean Revolt. And the Maccabean Revolt was a revolt against the Seleucid Empire that took place in the 2nd century B.C. in which Jews revolted against the the pagan oppressors and established at least temporarily a brief period of Jewish independence, which was not a particularly common thing. You can think of of Israel as a very small, uh, geographically small and in terms of numerically, there weren't a lot of Jews a very small area that was located at the crossroads of three much larger continents and much larger empires, of course, Europe, Asia, and Africa. And so you had these big players in the the world at the time, whether it was in the time of Egypt or Assyria or Babylon, big players, Greece and Rome. And Israel was just sort of getting tossed to and fro and was often used as a bartering piece Um, as nations jockeyed among themselves. But for a brief period in the intertestamental times, Israel, after the Maccabean Revolt, had had independence. Had independence before uh, Rome eventually established what was called Judea or Palestine. So out of the Maccabean Revolt grew something called the Hasmonean Dynasty. And then out of that also grew what we know as the Herodian Dynasty, which is why when we come to the New Testament, we encounter this guy named Herod, Herod the Great. Herod again and again and again presented as the so-called king of the Jews. 
Okay, Herod was essentially, or the Herodians were essentially puppet rulers that were set up by the Romans to sort of keep peace in Palestine, right? They were Jewish enough, though Herod himself uh, was not, Herod in the New Testament was not fully Jewish, but Jewish enough to sort of keep the peace among the Jews. And so the Hasmonean and Herodian dynasties grow out of this intertestamental period. This is the world into which Jesus comes. Right at about the time of the birth of Jesus, around AD 6, uh, Rome establishes Judea, the province of Judea or Palestine, as basically a, 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 a small vassal nation under which, or which was under the um, authority and rulership of Rome. And so when we come to the New Testament, this is the, this is the stage, so to speak, that Jesus steps onto, right? It's a, it's a different world in many respects than the Old Testament world. Um, the Old Testament world is progressively moving from the patriarchal period through the uh, monarchal period of David, then the post-monarchal period, then we get into the Babylonian captivity, post-Babylonian captivity, Second Temple Judaism, the intertestamental period. By the time we get to the New Testament, the world, the shape of the world, the feel of the world, the geopolitical uh, machinations of the world is very, very, very different from Abraham's time, even David's time, and even the time before the captivity. So Jesus steps into a world that is simultaneously Jewish and Greek. This Greeking of the world is what's called Hellenism or Hellenization, where the Greek influence and the influence of Greek thinking and, and Greek philosophy uh, began to saturate all cultures, including the Roman culture and even Jewish culture. In fact, the Maccabean revolt that I just mentioned a moment ago was actually in response by some really conservative traditional Jews against what they perceived to be the liberalizing or the Hellenizing of the Jewish faith. So Jesus, Jesus steps into what you could describe as a tinderbox of cultural complexity. There's the Roman element, there's the Greek or Hellen, Hellenistic element, there's the Palestinian Jewish element, there's the Hellenistic Jewish element, and each one of these elements is sort of jockeying for position and for prominence. And Israel at this time would have been easily lost, the nation of Israel would have been easily lost in a vortex of swirling influences and perspectives and opinions. It's out of this situation that grew, uh, that grew what we know as rabbinical Judaism. Rabbinical Judaism is basically a product of Jews looking increasingly to religious leaders, rabbis, teachers who would tell them how to navigate the increasingly complex world in which they found themselves. Which is what makes Jesus so, one of the things that makes Jesus so radical is that when he shows up in the New Testament and he starts saying things, he's not speaking like the religious leaders of his day and he's not appealing to rabbinical authority. He's not saying Rabbi Hillel says so-and-so and Rabbi uh, you know, Judah says so-and-so. He's not quoting the rabbis as authorities. In fact, one of the things that's presented to us in the Gospel of Matthew is that right after Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll be to in a, few, in a couple months, the response of the people is, according to Matthew, right at the last two verses of Matthew chapter 7, it says that the people were astonished at Jesus' teaching, teaching because He taught them as one possessing authority and not as the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus was not referring over and over again ad nauseum to other rabbinical authorities and what does so-and-so rabbi say and what's the tradition there. Jesus shows up as a comparatively young man in his late 20s or early 30s and he speaks with a, an, assured, an assuredness and a, and a confidence 
and a authority that was singular. And it was frankly refreshing. It was like, whoa, who is this guy that has the audacity to say things like, you have heard, but I say. You have been hearing, translation, from the rabbis, from the traditions, from the ancestral teachings of the fathers. You have been hearing, but I say. You have been hearing, but I say. You have been hearing, but I say. People often mistranslate or misunderstand when Jesus says, for example, uses that phrase, and he says, for example, you have heard that it was said, uh, you, shall not, uh, uh, you shall not commit adultery, but I say, to you that, I say to you that whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. People have set what Jesus is saying, their intention with Moses, as if Jesus is saying, oh yeah, Moses, we're done with old Moses. You've heard Moses, but I say, oh no, 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 no. Jesus is not setting himself over and against Moses. In fact, in that very Sermon on the Mount, he says, Heaven and earth will not pass away, or excuse me, heaven and earth, nothing will change in the law, in Torah, in the writings of Moses, until heaven and earth pass away. So when Jesus says this, you have heard, but I say, this is not an opposition to Moses. It's not an opposition to Scripture. It's not an opposition to Torah. This is an opposition to this prevailing rabbinical culture. Well, Rabbi so-and-so says, and quoting him as an authority, Rabbi so-and-so says, and there was this milieu of rabbinical Judaism into which the comparatively young and certainly unknown and by all accounts inexperienced Jesus steps and has the temerity and the audacity to start saying, you've been hearing, but I say. You've been hearing, but I say. To which the appropriate response, the appropriate first century Jewish response would have been, Just who does this guy think he is? And that, of course, is the $64,000 question. Just who does this guy think he is? So Matthew wants you to know that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the people were astonished at his teaching because he taught them as one possessing authority and not like the teachers of the day. So that gets us basically from Malachi to Matthew. Much more could be said. Books have been written. Tomes have been written on this period of 400 years known as the intertestamental period or the so-called silent years. But for our purposes here, it's enough for us to note that the world of Abraham was already very different to the world of David, very different world to the to, to the, to the uh, uh, post-monarchal prophets, very different to the period uh, post-captivity, very different to the intertestamental period, and very different still to the time when Jesus arrives on the scene. When Jesus arrives on the scene, Rome is the big dog in the land, Greek is the lingua franca, the Jews have been scattered hither and yon, and Jesus steps into a milieu of cultural, psychological, social, theological complexity, and he steps in with clarity, he steps in with with incisiveness, he steps in with compassion, with healing, and with a singular message about the kingdom. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but let's continue to make our way through. The notion of God being with his people frames Matthew's gospel. This is a pretty interesting insight, and I want you to see it. If you've got your Bible there, why don't you open to Matthew chapter 1, and note with me that one of the names that was ascribed to Jesus in chapter 1 of verse 23, which we'll get to in more depth next week, but we're going to spend at least some time introducing ourselves to the series and introducing ourselves to Matthew, and especially chapter 1 today, but we'll spend a little more time in chapter 1 and also chapter 2 next week. 
Verse 23 says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. God with us. Now, this is key. This promise of withness, if I could coin a word, I've been accused over the years of inventing words, so let me, let me rally to that accusation. Withness. This withness that is being described here is, in, is growing directly out of the separation between Israel and Israel's God that we see in places like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Malachi. This, this silent period or this intertestamental period where it appears as though Israel has been for all intents and purposes abandoned in which God is not with His people and His Word is not with His people and His prophets are not with God's people. There's this period of silence, this period of apparent separation and when Jesus shows up right at the, the very first chapter of the New Testament is this idea that, that somebody will come and Emmanuel will come, a Savior will come, a Messiah will come. His name will be called Emmanuel. You will notice that many Jewish names, Hebrew names, have either as their prefix or their suffix uh, E-L. E-L. As a prefix, we have names like Elijah and Elisha. And as a suffix, we have names like Daniel, Nathaniel, Samuel. And here we have Michael. Here we have Emmanuel, which just translates with God or God with us. Now, here's a fascinating little thing. Go all the way to Matthew chapter 28, which is the last chapter in Matthew's gospel. One of the things that I'm really excited about studying through Matthew as a book, and one of the things I know Pastor Jared is very excited about, is that rather than just Pastor David and Pastor Jared and myself sitting down and coming up with some structure or some lattice, some scaffolding to, to talk about Jesus, wouldn't it be better to hear how a first century Jewish believer talked about Jesus? Give us a feel for the shape of his book and not just our ideas about how the New Testament should be shaped. I love the idea that, that just like we did with the book of Acts, 28 chapters in Acts, by the end of it we had a feel for Luke. Luke is a writer. Luke is a, Luke is a theologian. Luke is a traveler. We had a feel for, for not just the early church, but we had a feel for Luke as well. We're going to get that same feel in Matthew. There's going to be a feel for the shape of Matthew, the things that are important to him, the way that he writes, the things that he emphasizes, and we'll talk about some of those. One of them right here is the idea of with. If you go all the way to Matthew chapter 28, you have this promise of Jesus, the closing words of the gospel, beginning in verse 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples, familiar words to us, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Wait for it. Here it comes. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Matthew 1 opens, hey, God is with. And Matthew 28 closes, God is with. This idea of God's withness, both to Israel and to the wider community, the wider world, is a central feature of Matthew's gospel. And we'll see it again and again. So what we're going to do in this series here, and I'm pretty excited about it, is we're going to walk through seven chapters. Pastor Jared, myself, and Pastor David sat down this week and we said, okay, is there a way to also chapterize uh, this series on Jesus, the incomparable series? And so we sat down 
and spent some time looking through the Gospel of Matthew and seeing how the Gospel of Matthew's divisions might work. And fortunately for us, it actually works pretty well. If you notice here the first four chapters, chapters 1 to 4, there's a strong emphasis on Jesus as the Son. And I'll be taking the next four sermons today and the next three sermons, and uh, I'll be taking that. Uh, Then the period after that, or the section after that, chapters 5, 6, and 7, deals with the Sermon on the Mount, the longest single sermon in the New Testament, spanning three full chapters, and Pastor Jared will take those. Jesus as preacher, Jesus as, as communicator of a message. The next two chapters, then, we see Jesus healing. He's healing, he's healing, he's healing, he's healing. And Matthew seems to have purposefully arranged his gospel in this way, to make this point. And, appropriately enough, our own counselor and clinician and new associate pastor, uh, David Haupt, will take those two sermons on Jesus as a healer. We then get to the calling of the disciples and the emergence of a new Israel. Jesus calls 12 with intentionality. There were 12 patriarchs. Jesus calls 12 disciples. And so that's the next period, chapters 10, 11, and 12, where we find Jesus as leader. Then the largest section here is chapters 13 to 20 that involves a lot of teaching, and especially teaching with parables. That's a central feature of the Gospel of Matthew that we'll get to in just a moment. And then finally, Jesus as seer, S-E-E-R. How many people here know what that word means, a seer? Sort of an old word. Jared knows. Okay. The word, it means a prophet. It, it, It means exactly what it sounds like it means, a seer. Somebody who sees, and this is actually an old word for a prophet. And in chapters 21 to 25, Jesus comes off almost like an Old Testament prophet. He sounds like an Ezekiel. He sounds like a Jeremiah, anticipating destruction, announcing judgment, and, and coming wrath. And so Jesus comes off here like a, like a seer, an, an, an Old Testament prophet. And then finally, in the closing chapters of Matthew, the Passion, which revolves around Gethsemane, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, we see Jesus as conqueror of sin and of death. And so those are going to be our seven chapters. Son, preacher, healer, leader, teacher, seer, and conqueror. It's going to be fun. It's going to be great. All right. So a key feature of Matthew's Gospels is his use of Matthew's Gospel is Jesus' use of parables. It's interesting to look at the, the, the Gospels, the four Gospels. Of course, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John records very, very few parables, almost no parables that Jesus tells. Luke records a number of parables and a number of unique parables, and Matthew and Mark also record parables as well. Both Luke and Matthew put, put Jesus' teaching in parables right at the center of Jesus' whole message. And that's actually why we've called the series Incomparable. Now think about that word for just a moment incomparable. It means cannot be compared to or unique. But if you look carefully at the word incomparable, what word is contained in there? The word parable is right in there. We find Jesus comparing the kingdom of heaven to the strangest of things. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. What kingdom is like a little seed? The kingdom of heaven is like a net. In what sense is a kingdom like a net used by a fisherman? The kingdom of heaven is like yeast. I mean, this is not exactly the kinds of things that we use to describe kingdoms. Vast, expansive, important, 
and significant empires. And yet Jesus again and again used some of the most unanticipated and strange things to describe the kingdom. This phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, is used by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew 11 times. 11 times. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. And just as another point, Matthew uses that phrase, the kingdom of heaven. That's not a Lucan phrase. It's not a, it's not a phrase in John or in Mark. That's, that's Matthew's phrase. Most of the other Gospels use the kingdom of God. Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven. One of the reasons for that might well be that Matthew was writing to a largely Jewish audience, though Gentiles were certainly not excluded, and he was sensitive about using the word God in a way that might have been perceived inappropriate. And so the kingdom of heaven is Matthew's term. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. And Jesus again says that it's like some of the very strangest things. That's why we've called this series Incomparable. Jesus himself as a human being is not only incomparable, but the kingdom that he came to describe was incomparable. In repeatedly saying what the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom was like, he was also by extension saying what it's not like. In saying that it is like a mustard seed and it is like yeast and it is like a net, he was saying that it's not like you would think a kingdom would be. In fact, he was effectively saying, the kingdom is not like any other kind of kingdom with which you are presently familiar. The kingdom of heaven is not Egypt. The kingdom of heaven is not Assyria. The kingdom of heaven is not Babylon. The kingdom of heaven is not Greece. And especially the point was, the kingdom of heaven is not a bigger and stronger and better version of the preeminent kingdom that existed in Jesus' day, Rome. You see, there was a danger, a real danger, when Jews start talking about a king and a kingdom. The danger is is easy to see. You've just finished, as we've mentioned, a period of Jewish independence that that was led out by the Maccabean Revolt, and there was always this sort of tinderbox of of hostility and animosity toward Rome that the Jews could just flare up at any moment if they thought that somebody was a king, somebody was a deliverer, somebody was a Messiah. And so the language of kingdom and the language of king was dangerous language. Very similar to the word terrorist today. It was language that was charged with emotion, with energy, and with potential political hostility. King and kingdom king and kingdom. And so Jesus, we find him when he speaks about the kingdom, saying things that sound decidedly non-threatening. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast. The kingdom of heaven is like a net. The kingdom of heaven is like a little seed. We also find Jesus very, very rarely referring to himself as a king. He lets other people do that. We'll see that in just a second. That's why we've called the series Incomparable, and so that it wasn't lost on anybody, I purposely made parable white and incom black, so you can see it jump right at you, right out at you. Now, a kingdom, of course, needs a king, and Matthew makes this point again and again and again. One of my favorite books on the New Testament, a book I highly recommend, is written by a man named N.T. Wright, and he wrote a book called How God Became King. Great book. Highly recommended. So recommended, I gave it to my father. I said, Dad, you've got to read this book. I, I know that, I know that you know, you're not exactly where I'm at religiously and spiritually, but I really want you to read this book, and I recommended it to him. It was an easy sell to my dad because my dad is now an Anglican, and N.T. Wright is an Anglican theologian. And in that book, How God Became King, N.T. Wright develops this idea that one of the, 
major points, one of the central theses of the Gospels, and especially of Matthew, is that this is an announcement that God has now become the king of the world. But he's become king in a most unusual way. He's become king in the strangest of ways. And I'm going to just show you this. Take your Bible there. Let's look at a few of these in Matthew. Matthew chapter 2. Look at these very interesting ways that Matthew subtly, subtly, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here, inserts the notion that Jesus is really the king, the real king. It's not Caesar in Rome hundreds of miles away, and it certainly is not Herod sitting on, you know, the artificial king of the Jews throne that existed in Jerusalem. There's these subtle insertions of Jesus as king, and they come up so often that we can be absolutely sure this is one of the major points that Matthew is driving at in his gospel, that Jesus is the right and truthful and legitimate king of the world. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, the wise men show up from the east, and what's their question? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Even Matthew here is saying, and of course they actually, they were real people that actually did come and really did inquire, but Matthew includes this in his gospel to let you know that even non-Jews recognized that the Jewish king had come. Oh, the Jews might have missed it, but the, the wise men from the east, that was the first century way of saying from a long way away. Even people from a long way away recognized the kingship of Jesus. Come to Matthew chapter 21. Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem. And as he's doing it, Matthew records an Old Testament prophecy. An Old Testament prophecy that's found in verse 5. He's quoting from Zechariah. We'll pick it up in verse 4. Matthew chapter 21, verse 4. And all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out and said, Hosanna to the Son of David! Now, the, now the, 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 the idea of the Davidic line here is very important. We'll get to it in just a moment. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hey, the king is on a donkey. Just, in, just as it was said in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophet, prophet Zechariah. You see that? You see that rabbi there? That, that young, provocative rabbi riding into Jerusalem atop the palm branches? The king is coming. The king is coming. Matthew chapter 25, in verse 34, this is in a parable. Jesus says these words, Then the king will say to those on the right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The king will say. In the parable, the king is unmistakably Jesus himself, inviting the sheep into the kingdom of his father. The king will say. This is one of the very, very very few instances in the gospel where Jesus refers to himself as the king. The king will say, but even here he does it in a subtle way, in the context of a parable. Now come to Matthew chapter 27. And these occur almost all in the context of the mockery of Jesus, but Matthew uses it to his advantage. 
he uses it to his advantage because he knew that even though they were mocking, these, these mockeries were satanic in their origin, and Matthew knew that Satan knew that what they were saying was true. Hey, that rhymes. Matthew knew that Satan knew that what they were saying was true. Boom! Matthew chapter 27, verse 11. Check this out. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him and said, Are you the king of the Jews? And this is as close as we get to Jesus saying, Yes. He simply says, It is as you say. Subtle. Again, for reasons that that are obvious to us. Jesus had to be very careful about announcing himself as a king because any uh, pretender to the throne, any uh, prospective king was a threat potentially to the real king, particularly if it was known commonly that he came through the lineage of David. Because Herod, by the way, is only half Jewish. So his, Herod's, Herod's link to the throne has everything to do with Rome putting him in that position, not because he had any rightful or genealogical tie to any throne in terms of the king of the Jews. So, so the announcement that somebody who had a genealogical uh, lineal attachment to David was a real threat. So when Jesus stands here before Pilate and Pilate's like, look, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, it's, it's as you say. Now the rest of these all occur in the context of mockery. Look at verse 29, also in chapter 27. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and they mocked him saying, hail, king of Jews. Matthew says, yeah, I'll take that. That actually is the good news. I'll take that mockery. I'll take that demonic, satanic mockery, and I'll put it right in my book, my, my gospel about the announcement that God has become the king of the world in a most unexpected of ways. Verse 37, same chapter. And they put over his head an accusation written against him. It was an accusation of mockery and of derision. It was a joke, they thought. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And then finally in verse 42, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. A central feature of Matthew's gospel is that Jesus has become the rightful king. And this isn't something that we get through through the whole gospel only. He actually announces it profoundly in the very first verse of his gospel, which is on the screen here. The book of the Genesis The book of the beginning, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, the first and most obvious thing that needs to be said about this verse is that it effectively proves that that page I was telling you to tear out of your Bible does not belong there, right? This verse is proof positive that this page is um, an uninvited dinner guest, Right? It doesn't belong there. Because the only way you would know who David was or who Abraham was is if you'd read this part. So this part assumes this part. It not only assumes it, it grows right from it. These are the roots, you might say, and these are the branches and the fruit. And so again, I, I fold this page over and I invite you to do the same or to tear it out yourself so that you don't have to look at it because it doesn't belong there. Matthew's announcement at the very beginning of his gospel lets us know that the only way you're ever going to understand who Jesus is and what he's doing and what he's saying is if you know who these old old guys are, people like Abraham and David. Now, why these two? 
Why these two right at the outset? Well, the first is for the reason that we've already mentioned. David is a tie to the kingly line. The true king has come. The true king has arrived. And the use of Abraham, of course, is a tie to the whole of Israel's grand covenantal history. God's promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis in which he said, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. In you, Abraham, and in your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And in this one verse, one verse, Matthew effectively summarizes the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The rightful king has come and the promises to Abraham are being fulfilled. One verse, one verse, and yet Pastor Jared, Pastor David, and myself are undertaking the ambitious goal to go through this whole book in just 28 Sabbaths. I could spend the rest of my pastorate here, whether it's 10 years or 20 years, in this one book. We're going to race through it in 28 short sermons. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, here's a fascinating little point about the genealogies that follow. Verses 1 to about 17 divide the genealogy up into three sets of 14. We'll talk more about that next week. We have talked about it in the past. Matthew conveniently divides Israel's history up, Abraham to David, David to captivity, captivity to Messiah. Three groups of 14. 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. And as we've noted in this church before... Three fourteens is six sevens. A seven, a seven, a seven, a seven, a seven, and a seven, which for Jewish readers, and for Seventh-day Adventist readers, frankly, the, the announcement of the seven, it, it, it brings about a sense of anticipation, a sense of, whoa, what's coming next? A, a sense of, whoa, the seventh, seventh is coming? The seventh, seven is on its way, and Jesus comes right at the cusp Messiah comes right at the cusp of the announcement of the 7th 7. And, and we'll get into that in more detail next week and beyond. But here's an interesting thing. As you divide, as Matthew divides up the genealogies into these three 14s, he includes several very interesting features, one of which is the inclusion of women. The inclusion of women in a genealogy which culturally and historically did not require or even utilize women generally in genealogies. Notice what Craig Keener says in his a commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, one of the best-known conservative commentaries on Matthew's Gospel. For Matthew and his circle of Jewish Christians, Jesus was not an afterthought to Judaism, a distinct and unexpected addition to God's plan in the Old Testament. No, Jesus was the goal to which Israel's lovingly remembered history pointed. The son of David the son of Abraham. Now, here's the main feature I want to get at. Another key feature of Matthew's gospel is Jesus' positive interactions with outcasts. This comes again and again, and Jared and I alluded to this a few Sabbaths ago. You have Jesus calling a tax collector. You have Jesus touching a leper. You have Jesus interacting positively with the Syrophoenician woman and the Roman centurion. You have the sense that Jesus speaks to Zacchaeus and goes and has dinner in his home, who was a hated tax collector. There's this really strong sense here that Jesus is freely and positively mingling with outcasts, the chiefest of whom was the Gentiles. 
Jesus is very comfortable with the Gentiles. And Matthew, though his gospel was written almost certainly to a primarily Jewish audience, is including this central feature. And one of the not-so-subtle ways that he does it is the inclusion of four women in the genealogy, not coincidentally, all of which are Gentile. So it's not just that women are included in the genealogy of Jesus, it's that serendipitously, coincidentally, no, intentionally, each of those women just happens to be a Gentile. Tamar of Canaan in verse 3 of chapter 1. Rahab of Jericho. She was a Canaanite. Of course she was. Chapter 1, verse 5. Ruth the Moabitess. Chapter 1, verse 5. And then also Uriah the Hittite's wife. Now notice what Keener says about the inclusion of these three women, or these four women. Genealogies needed uh, to include only men. So the unexpected appearance of four women draws attention to them, right? Any first century Jew who's reading that's like, whoa, what, 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 what's going on here? What are the women doing in the... But as you pay attention, you notice Gentile, 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 Gentile. And that's the point that Keener makes. Had Matthew merely meant to evoke the history of Israel in some general way, one would have expected him to have named the matriarchs of Israel, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel. Instead, he names four women whose primary common link is their Gentile ancestry. Already in the, very, in the first 17 verses of chapter 1, we are already being softened and prepared for what at that time, the Gospel of Matthew was written, there's debate. Was it written before AD 70 or after AD 70? But the point is, is that whether it was written in AD 60 or AD 80, by the time the Gospel of Matthew is written, the Jewish mission to the Gentiles was in full swing, and Matthew is writing to, to soften the territory so that people will see that this isn't something that they've invented as the church by liberalizing Judaism. This is something that was central and inherent to the very mission of Jesus himself, a, a positive, fraternal, and favorable interaction with Gentile people. So much so that Jesus' own genealogy is connected to Gentile peoples. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Final quotation from our presentation today, and I think the stage will be sufficiently set for us in the coming weeks and months to study through the gospel of Matthew. It's going to be absolutely awesome. This is from N.T. Wright's Matthew for Everyone. Abraham is the founding father to whom God made great promises. We've been spending, we spent a year talking about that. He would be given the land of Canaan and the nations would be blessed through his family. David was the great king to whom again God made promises of future lordship over the whole world. That's another tie between Abraham and David. That both of them were universal and worldwide in their scope, in terms of the scope of the promises that God made to them. The Babylonian exile was the time when it seemed, seemed that all these promises were lost forever, drowned in the sea of Israel's sin and God's judgment. Oh man, don't you just feel like that sometimes? Don't you just feel sometimes like all of God's promises are drowning in your life, in your broken promises and in your failures to live up to what God had called you to do? I mean, I just think it's such a Israel embodies the, the struggle and the, the pathos that all of us do, doubting whether or not God can really bring anything good out of a life that seems so wrecked and marred by sin. And yet the promise is right there in front of us. It seemed as though all of God's promises had fallen flat, flat on their face. But no, no, in fact, Jesus comes. 
He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. God resurrects, as it were, his promises and fulfills them in the man Jesus. Man, this is going to be a great series. But the prophets of the exile promised that God would again restore Abraham's people and David's royal line. The long years that followed, during which some of the Jews had come back from Babylon, but were still living under foreign pagan oppression, were seen by many as a continuing exile, still waiting for God to deliver Israel from sin and the judgment it brought. Now is the moment, Matthew is saying, for all of this to happen. The child who comes at the end of this line is God's anointed, the long-awaited Messiah, and I love the way he writes this, to fulfill all the layers and levels of the prophecies of old. That all of those promises, that all of those prophecies will be fulfilled on their various layers and in, in various ways through Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. When the angel appears and speaks to Joseph, he says, I got a name. You're not going to name this boy. He already has a name. He has a name. His name dates back to the one, the one, who would take the baton from the hand of Moses and lead the children of Israel into the Canaan land, Yeshua. And you will call his name Yeshua, Jesus, as we would say, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus will be an incomparable human being. He will be an incomparable Messiah. And he will announce an incomparable kingdom. And he wants to take all of that incomparability and he wants to transform your life, not just to be the king of a dusty old book called Matthew, not just to be the king of an ancient nation. Jesus longs to be the king of your life and of mine. For my part, I can't imagine someone who I would rather serve and someone who I would rather obey. Today, I say with Matthew, Jesus is my king. Father in heaven, you've been with us in this launch, this beginning presentation on the gospel of Matthew, the incomparable series. And Father, we're looking forward to what you have in store for us. Me personally, I'm thrilled. I know Pastor Jared is thrilled. David is thrilled. It's going to be great. So, Father, I pray that you will give the church ears to hear. There's going to be some great lessons. There's going to be some encouraging lessons. There's going to be some challenging lessons. But, Father, give us ears to hear what this first century Jewish disciple had to say about his Savior, his friend, and his King, a man named Yeshua, Yeshua of Nazareth, in whose name we pray. Amen.